Chapter twenty three, part eight of volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty three. The Hundred Years' War. Charles the Sixth and the Dukes of Burgundy, Part Eight. Duke John hesitated, from irresolution even more than from distrust. It was a serious matter for him to commit himself more and more, by his own proper motion, against the King of England and his old allies amongst the populace of Paris. Why should he be required to go in person to seek the Dauphin? It was far simpler, he said, for Charles to come to the King, his father. Tanneguy Duchatel went to Troyes to tell the Duke that the Dauphin had come to meet him as far as Montereau, and with the help of the Lady of Giac, persuaded on his side, to Bray-sur-Seine, two leagues from Montereau. When the two princes had drawn thus near, their agents proposed that the interview should take place on the very bridge of Montereau, with the precautions and according to the forms decided on. In the Duke's household many of his most devoted servants were opposed to this interview, the place, they said, had been chosen by, and would be under the ordering of the Dauphin's people, of the old servants of the Duke of Orléans and the Count of Armagnac. At the same time four successive messages came from Paris urging the Duke to take the plunge, and at last he took his resolution. "'It is my duty,' said he, "'to risk my person in order to get it so great a blessing as peace. Whatever happens, my wish is peace. If they kill me, I shall die a martyr.' peace being made, I will take the men of my lord the Dauphin to go and fight the English. He has some good men of war and some sagacious captains. Tanneguy and Barbizon are valiant knights. Then we shall see which is the better man, Jack Annotin of Flanders, or Henry of Lancaster. He set out for Bray on the 10th of September, 1419, and arrived about two o'clock before Montereau. Tanneguy Duchatel came and met him there. Well, said the duke, on your assurance we are come to see my lord the Dauphin, supposing that he is quite willing to keep the peace between himself and us, as we will also keep it, all ready to serve him according to his wishes. My most dread lord, answered Tanneguy, have you no fear? My lord is well pleased with you, and desires henceforth to govern himself according to your counsels. You have about him good friends who serve you well. It was agreed that the Dauphin and the Duke should, each from his own side, go upon the bridge of Montereau, each with ten men-at-arms, of whom they should previously forward a list. The Dauphin's people had caused to be constructed at the two ends of the bridge strong barriers closed by a gate. About the centre of the bridge was a sort of lodge made of planks, the entrance to which was, on either side, through a pretty narrow passage. Within the lodge there was no barrier in the middle to separate the two parties. Whilst Duke John and his confidants, in concert with the Dauphin's people, were regulating these material arrangements, a chamber attendant ran in quite scared, shouting out, "'My lord, look to yourself. Without a doubt you will be betrayed.' The duke turned towards Tanneguy, and said, "'We trust ourselves to your word. In God's holy name are you quite sure of what you have told us? For you would do ill to betray us.' "'My most dread lord,' answered Tanneguy, "'I would rather be dead than commit treason against you or any other. Have ye no fear?' I certify you that my lord meaneth you no evil. Very well, we will go then, trusting in God and you, rejoined the duke, and he set out walking to the bridge. 
On arriving at the barrier on the castle side, he found there to receive him, Sire de Beauvau and Tanneguy du Chatel. Come to my lord, said they, he is awaiting you. Gentlemen, said the duke, you see how I come. And he showed them that he and his people had only their swords. Then, clapping Tanneguy on the shoulder, he said, Here is he in whom I trust. And advancing towards the Dauphin, who remained standing, on the town side, at the end of the lodge constructed in the middle of the bridge. On arriving at the prince's presence, Duke John took off his velvet cap and bent his knee to the ground. My lord, said he, after God my duty is to obey and serve you, I offer to apply thereto and employ therein my body, my friends, my allies, and well-wishers. Say I well, he added, fixing his eyes on the Dauphin. Fair cousin, answered the prince, you say so well that none could say better. Rise and be covered. Conversation thereupon ensued between the two princes. The Dauphin complained of the duke's delay in coming to see him. For eighteen days, he said, you have made us await your coming in this place of Montereau, this place a prey to epidemic and mortality, at the risk of and probably with an eye to our personal danger. The duke, surprised and troubled, resumed his haughty and exacting tone. We can neither do nor advise aught, said he, save in your father's presence. You must come thither. I shall go when I think proper, said Charles, and not at your will and pleasure. It is well known that whatever we do, we two together, the king will be content with. Then he reproached the duke with his inertness against the English, with the capture of Pontoise, and with his alliances amongst the promoters of civil war. The conversation was becoming more and more acrid and biting. In so doing, added the Dauphin, you were wanting to your duty. My lord, replied the duke, I did only what it was my duty to do. Yes, you were wanting, repeated Charles. No, replied the duke. It was probably at these words that, the lookers-on also waxing wroth, Tanneguy Duchatel told the duke that the time had come for expiating the murder of the Duke of Orléans, which none of them had forgotten, and raised his battle-axe to strike the duke. Sire de Nevailles, who happened to be at his master's side, arrested the weapon, but on the other hand, the Viscount of Narbonne raised his over Nevailles, saying, Whoever stirs is a dead man. At this moment, it is said, the mob which was thronging before the barriers at the end of the bridge heard cries of, Alarm! Slay! Slay! Tanneguy had struck and felled the duke. Several others ran their swords into him, and he expired. The Dauphin had withdrawn from the scene and gone back into the town. After his departure, his partisans forced the barrier, charged the dumbfounded Burgundians, sent them flying along the road to Bray, and returned on to the bridge, and would have cast the body of Duke John, after stripping it, into the river. But the minister of Montereau withstood them, and had it carried to a mill near the bridge. Next day he was put in a pauper's shell, with nothing on but his shirt and drawers, and was subsequently interred at the church of Notre-Dame de Montereau, without winding-sheet and without pall over his grave. The enmities of the Orleanese and the Armagnacs had obtained satisfaction but they were transferred to the hearts of the Burgundians. After twelve years of public crime and misfortune, the murder of Louis of Orléans had been avenged, and should not that of John of Burgundy be, in its turn? Wherever the direct power or the indirect influence of the Duke of Burgundy was predominant, there was a burst of indignation and vindictive passion. As soon as the Count of Carolet, Philip, afterwards called the Good, heard at Ghent, where he happened at that time to be, of his father's murder, he was proclaimed Duke of Burgundy. Michel, said he to his wife, sister of the Dauphin, Charles, your brother has murdered my father. 
The princess burst into tears, but the new duke calmed her by saying that nothing could alter the love and confidence he felt towards her. At Troy, Queen Isabel showed more anger than anyone else against her son, the Dauphin, and she got a letter written by King Charles the Sixth to the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy, begging her, her and her children, to set in motion all their relatives, friends, and vassals to avenge Duke John. At Paris, on the 12th of September, the next day but one after the murder, the Chancellor, the Parliament, the Provost Royal, the Provost of Tradesmen, and all the councillors and officers of the King assembled, together with great number of nobles and burgesses and a great multitude of people, who all swore to oppose with their bodies and all their might the enterprise of the criminal breakers of the peace, and to prosecute the cause of vengeance and reparation against those who were guilty of the death and homicide of the late Duke of Burgundy. Independently of party passion, such was, in northern and eastern France, the general and spontaneous sentiment of the people. The Dauphin and his counsellors, in order to explain and justify their act, wrote in all directions to say that, during the interview, Duke John had answered the Dauphin with mad words. He had felt for his sword in order to attack and outrage our person, the which, as we have since found out, he aspired to place in subjection, but through his own madness met death instead. But these assertions found little credence, and one of the two knights who were singled out by the Dauphin to accompany him on to the bridge of Montereau, Sire de Barbazan, who had been a friend of the Duke of Orléans and of the Count of Armagnac, said vehemently to the authors of the plot, "'You have destroyed our master's honour and heritage, and I would rather have died than be present at this day's work, even though I had not been there to no purpose.' But it was not long before an event, easy to foresee, counterbalanced this general impression and restored credit and strength to the Dauphin and his party. Henry V, King of England, as soon as he heard about the murder of Duke John, set himself to work to derive from it all the advantages he anticipated. A great loss, said he, is the Duke of Burgundy. He was a good and true knight, and an honourable prince. But through his death we are by God's help at the summit of our wishes." We shall thus, in spite of all Frenchmen, possess Dame Catherine, whom we have so much desired. As early as the 24th of September, 1419, Henry V gave full powers to certain of his people to treat with the illustrious city of Paris and the other towns, in adherence to the said city. On the 17th of October was opened at Arras a congress between the plenipotentiaries of England and those of Burgundy. On the 20th of November a special truce was granted to the Parisians, whilst Henry V, in concert with Duke Philip of Burgundy, was prosecuting the war against the Dauphin. On the 2nd of December the bases were laid of an agreement between the English and the Burgundians. The preliminaries of the treaty, which was drawn up in accordance with these bases, were signed on the 9th of April, 1420, by King Charles VI, and on the 20th communicated at Paris by the Chancellor of France to the Parliament, and to all the religious and civil, royal and municipal authorities of the capital. After this communication, the Chancellor and the Premier President of Parliament went with these preliminaries to Henry V at Pontoise, where he set out with the division of his army for Troy, where the treaty, definitive and complete, was at last signed and promulgated in the Cathedral of Troy, on the 21st of May, 1420. Of the twenty-eight articles in this treaty, five contained its essential points and fixed its character. First, the King of France, Charles the Sixth, gave his daughter Catherine in marriage to Henry V, King of England. Second, 
Our son, King Henry, shall place no hindrance or trouble in the way of our holding and possessing as long as we live, and as at the present time, the crown, the kingly dignities of France, and all the revenues, proceeds, and profits which are attached thereto for the maintenance of our state, and the charges of the kingdom. Third, it is agreed that immediately after our death, and from that time forward, the crown and kingdom of France, with all their rights and appurtenances, shall belong perpetually, and shall be continued to our son King Henry and his heirs. Fourth, whereas we are, at most times, prevented from advising by ourselves, and from taking part in the disposal of the affairs of our kingdom, the power and the practice of governing and ordering the common weal shall belong, and shall be continued during our life, to our son King Henry, with the counsel of the nobles and sages of the kingdom, who shall obey us, and shall desire the honour and advantage of the said kingdom. Fifth, our son King Henry shall strive with all his might, and as soon as possible, to bring back to their obedience to us, all and each of the towns, cities, castles, places, districts, and persons in our kingdom that belong to the party commonly called of the Dauphin, or Armagnac. This substitution, in the near future, of an English for the French kingship, this relinquishment in the present of the government of France to the hands of an English prince, nominated to become before long her king, this authority given to the English prince to prosecute, in France, against the Dauphin of France, a civil war, this complete abdication of all the rights and duties of the kingship, of paternity and of national independence, and to sum up in all one word, this anti-French state stroke accomplished by a king of France, with the cooperation of him who was the greatest among French lords, to the advantage of a foreign sovereign, there was surely in this enough to excite the most ardent and most legitimate national feelings. They did not show themselves promptly or with a blaze. The fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, after so many military and civil troubles, had great weaknesses and deep-seated corruption in mind and character. Nevertheless, the revulsion against the Treaty of Troy was real and serious, even in the very heart of the party attached to the Duke of Burgundy. He was obliged to lay upon several of his servants formal injunctions to swear to this peace, which seemed to them treason. He had great difficulty in winning John of Luxembourg and his brother Louis, Bishop of Therouenne, over to it. "'It is your will,' said they, "'we will take this oath, but if we do, we will keep it to the hour of death.'" Many less powerful lords, who had lived a long while in the household of Duke John the Fearless, quitted his son, and sorrowfully returned to their own homes. They were treated as Armagnacs, but they persisted in calling themselves good and loyal Frenchmen. In the Duchy of Burgundy the majority of the towns refused to take the oath to the King of England. The most decisive and the most helpful proof of this awakening of national feeling was the ease experienced by the Dauphin, who was one day to be Charles the Seventh, in maintaining the war which, after the Treaty of Troy, was, in his father's and his mother's name, made upon him by the King of England and the Duke of Burgundy. This war lasted more than three years. Several towns, amongst others, Melun, Crotoy, Mew, saint Requier, offered an obstinate resistance to the attacks of the English and the Burgundians. On the 23rd of March, 1421, the Dauphin's troops, commanded by Sire de Lafayette, gained a signal victory over those of Henry V, whose brother, the Duke of Clarence, was killed in action. It was in Perche, Anjou, Maine, on the banks of the Loire, and in southern France, that the Dauphin found most of his enterprising and devoted partisans. 
the sojourn made by Henry V at Paris, in December, 1420, with his wife, Queen Catherine, King Charles VI, Queen Isabel, and the Duke of Burgundy, was not, in spite of galas and acclamations, a substantial and durable success for him. His dignified but haughty manners did not please the French, and he either could not or would not render them more easy and amiable, even with men of note who were necessary to him. Marshal Eel Adam one day went to see him in camp on war business. The king considered that he did not present himself with sufficient ceremony. Eel Adam, said he, is that the robe of a marshal of France? Sir, I have this whitey gray robe made to come hither by water aboard of Seine boats. Ha! said the king, look you a prince in the face when you speak to him? Sir, it is the custom in France that when one man speaks to another, of whatever rank and puissance that other may be, he passes for a sorry fellow and but little honourable if he dares not look him in the face. "'It is not our fashion,' said the king, and the subject dropped there. A popular poet of the time, Alan Cattier, constituted himself censor of the moral corruption and interpreter of the patriotic paroxysms caused by the cold and harsh supremacy of this unbending foreigner, who set himself up for king of France, and had not one feeling in sympathy with the French. Alan Cattier's Quadriage Invective is a lively and sometimes eloquent allegory, in which France personified implores her three children, the clergy, the chivalry, and the people, to forget their own quarrels and unite to save their mother whilst saving themselves. And this political pamphlet getting spread about amongst the provinces did good service to the national cause against the foreign conqueror. An event more powerful than any human eloquence occurred to give the Dauphin and his partisans earlier hopes. Towards the end of August, 1422, Henry V fell ill, and too stout-hearted to delude himself as to his condition, he thought no longer of anything but preparing himself for death. He had himself removed to Vincennes, called his counsellors about him, and gave them his last royal instructions. "'I leave you the government of France,' said he to his brother, the Duke of Bedford, "'unless our brother of Burgundy have a mind to undertake it.' For above all things I conjure you not to have any dissension with him. If that should happen, God preserve you from it. The affairs of this kingdom, which seem well advanced for us, would become bad. As soon as he had done with politics, he bade his doctors tell him how long he had still to live. One of them knelt down before his bed and said, Sir, be thinking of your soul. It seemeth to us that, saving the divine mercy, you have not more than two hours." The king summoned his confessor with the priests, and asked to have recited to him the penitential psalms. When they came to the twentieth versicle of the Miserere, Ut odificentur muri Jerusalem, that the walls of Jerusalem may be built up, he made them stop. Ah, said he, if God had been pleased to let me live out my time, I would, after putting an end to the war in France, reducing the Dauphin to submission or driving him out of the kingdom in which I would have established a sound peace, have gone to conquer Jerusalem. The wars I have undertaken have had the approval of all the proper men of the most holy personages. I commenced them and have prosecuted them without offence to God or peril to my soul. These were his last words. The chanting of psalms was resumed around him, and he expired on the 31st of August, 1422, at the age of thirty-four. A great soul and a great king, but a great example also of the boundless errors which may be fallen into by the greatest men, when they pursue with arrogant confidence their own views, forgetting the laws of justice and the rights of other men. 
On the 22nd of October, 1422, less than two months after the death of Henry V, Charles VI, King of France, died at Paris in the forty-third year of his reign. As soon as he had been buried at Saint-Denis, the Duke of Bedford, Regent of France, according to the will of Henry V, caused a herald to proclaim, Long live Henry of Lancaster, King of England and of France. The people's voice made very different proclamation. It had always been said that the public evils proceeded from the state of illness into which the unhappy King Charles had fallen. The goodness he had given glimpses of in his lucid intervals had made him an object of tender pity. Some weeks yet before his death, when he had entered Paris again, the inhabitants, in the midst of their sufferings, and under the harsh government of the English, had seen with joy their poor mad king coming back amongst them, and had greeted him with thousandfold shouts of Noel. His body lay in state for three days, with the face uncovered, in a hall of the hostel of St. Paul, and the multitude went thither to pray for him, saying, Ah, dear prince, never shall we have any so good as thou wert, never shall we see thee more. Accursed be thy death. Since thou dost leave us, we shall never have aught but wars and troubles. As for thee, thou goest to thy rest. As for us, we remain in tribulation and sorrow. We seem made to fall into the same distress as the children of Israel during the captivity in Babylon. The people's instinct was at the same time right and wrong. France had yet many evil days to go through, and cruel trials to endure. She was, however, to be saved at last. Charles the Sixth was to be followed by Charles the Seventh and Joan of Arc. End of chapter 23